Hi, this is Brian Crescenti, the executive editor at Polygon. And today on Newsworthy, we're going to be talking with Paul Megan of Epic Games. Newsworthy is an interview show that aims to talk about the intersection of news and games with newsmakers and thought leaders, both inside and outside the game industry. Paul Megan, president of Epic Games and former president of LucasArts, joins us today to discuss his company. Megan joined Epic in 2012 and became the company's president in 2014. He arrived just in time to see the latest metamorphosis of the company into something that employees there call Epic 4.0. This is the epic of big free games like Paragon, Fortnite, and Unreal Tournament. The epic of virtual reality development inside virtual reality. The epic of movies, television, car design, theme park creation. The epic of, well, everything. I spent the past month or so visiting with the people behind the company about this latest form of Epic and digging into what it means to be 4.0 and how the company got here. I chatted with Megan about a week before this month's cover story on Epic ran to discuss everything Epic, including the company's evolution and future goals. Let's have a listen. Paul, we uh, just just on a little bit of background, let's start off, I guess, uh, with... Before you came to Epic, because you you have a, a storied history in in the game industry, you what, what was your job prior to working at Epic? Where did you work? So prior to uh, coming to Epic, I was the president of LucasArts uh, from about 2010 until uh, mid 2012, uh, around the time that the the uh, purchase of Lucasfilm by Disney occurred. Okay, and you uh, then made the transition over when when you first came to Epic Games. Uh, it sounds like it was right around the time that the company was transitioning to this latest uh, latest form, to use a Pokemon <laughs> terminology. Um, what was what was the thing that drew you to the company and its its current take on on how it wants to be involved in the game industry? So I was actually in the process of starting another company uh, with my friend Kim Libreri, who's now our CTO. Uh, and we had uh, spent some time thinking about what we wanted to do next. Uh, and around that time, I got a call, uh, I think originally from Jay Wilbur, um, who uh, runs a lot of business here at Epic. And he's an old friend of mine. And he, he called up and he said, hey, you know, we're looking for uh, a new president, somebody to join the company. Um, and we thought you ought to come out and have a chat uh, with the team and, and spend some time with Tim. Uh, and of course, I'd known Tim for many years uh, and Mark Rain for many years and, and uh, Mike Caps and, and other members of the management team. Um, and uh, so I flew out and I spent some time with the team and, uh, and spent a lot of time with uh, Tim. And Tim told me about his vision for where he wanted Epic to go. Uh, and he felt that uh, Epic had gone through several different transitions where, you know, originally it was a, a, a shareware company where he uh, developed games and then he, he, you know, did all the marketing and he made all the art and, and uh, cashed all the checks and sent out the discs. And after that, he, he evolved the company into a PC-centric uh, uh, company around, I guess, the late 90s. And uh, after that, of course, there was the Gears of War era, um, where the company was very much console-focused and uh, really started to uh, push Visual Fidelity and, and Unreal Engine 3 came out. Uh, and, of course, they had a really 
amazing period of time where where I think everything was happening right for the company. Um, and as that that era came to an end, Tim recognized that there was a new opportunity for Epic, and that opportunity was to to build games that were more of a game as a service model, where the company would go directly to people who played the games and not have publishers anymore. Um, so he told me about that vision and the fact that he had uh, uh, gone out and he had uh, developed a partnership with Tencent, um, and he felt that this was was something that was really in the best interest of, of Epic and in our future, and I was excited by that prospect. So. Uh, in the end, I know this is a long-winded story, I'm sorry. Uh, in the end, uh, I, I uh, ended up coming and joining the company in about November of 2012. And, and so 2012, it sounds like that was sort of a pivotal year in this transition to uh, what, what I at least like to call Epic 4.0. I don't, <laughs> yeah. I don't know if you guys call it that. <laughs> um, so you, you all, uh, when you came over, um, you obviously came over with the, the experiences you've had uh, at Lucas, but also that relationship. And uh, it seems like, perhaps not coincidentally, um, it, it served you well in terms of some of the things that Epic is doing that doesn't directly involve games. Um, what, can you talk, talk a little bit about that? What, what is it that Epic's interested in that isn't directly making games? Well, I think the most fascinating thing right now is that um, because Epic has been making engines for so long and developed so much institutional knowledge and capability um, and made all the mistakes and iterated and, and uh, improved Unreal Engine 4, we found ourselves at, at a really amazing confluence of events where... Um, real-time rendered technology started to become uh, usable and, and meaningfully uh, beneficial to a lot of other industries. So uh, about, I don't know, sometime in, in maybe around 2010, 2012, uh, Fidelity reached a point where uh, real-time rendering became viable for animation and film, for, for pre-visualization, uh, and then product design, um, uh, things like architectural visualization, and then, of course, VR came along and went from being something that people were interested in for a long time to being something that was actually viable and, and was inching towards becoming uh, consumer technology. So when all of that happened, we found ourselves in a, in a position where we could really fulfill the promise of, of all of this time developing uh, engine technology and apply it really broadly to different fields. So it's been really exciting that we, we've been able to do what we love and, and develop this technology and use it to build our own games, but then see this opportunity for it to expand and to become more meaningful uh, across many, many different industries. So it's a, you know, frankly, it's a really fascinating time to be in the industry right now. Yeah. So you, you all, obviously you have your games, which I do want to talk about in a minute, but you have, so you have game development, you've got uh, your work in VR, you have the engine, of course. Um, you've got uh, then on top of that uh, entertainment in terms of what maybe uh, film creators or TV creators are working on, and then you have this other sort of um, nebulous area that involves people taking your engine and instead of using it to make games, they're using it to design theme park rides, like they announced it. I think uh, GDC and cars and and like how how did is that all? Is that all coming from them, or are you guys going out there and pitching the engine, or how is that all happening? One of the, the big changes that occurred back in 2014, I think it was, a couple of years ago now, 
uh, we shifted our model um, where, you know, back in the old days, if you wanted to have access to Unreal Engine, um, you know, you had to call up Epic and, you know, know Jay Wilbur or Joe Kreiner or somebody else on our team, Mark Rain, um, and you would reach out to them and you would, you know, you would uh, enter into a custom agreement to be able to use our technology. Um, in 2013, actually, we, we decided to make the engine more widely available. Um, and I think it was GDC 2013. 15, 15, oh, 14. Okay, so 14. Um, we rolled out the engine with a new model where anybody who wanted to could pay $19 a month with a royalty on anything that they actually shipped uh, and be able to use the engine to develop games or use it for education or animation or anything they wanted to. Um, the result of that, and then a subsequent step in 2015, where we actually said, okay, there's, there's no more subscription for you, the fee, it's just free, you can download it and use it, uh, was that many, many different people from different industries started to experiment with the technology and see what they could do with it. Um, and because in those industries they don't ship software, there really was no royalty of any kind. It was just an opportunity to come in and learn and take advantage of, of the tech. Um, so the natural result of that change in our business model was that we all of a sudden had many, many companies that we had never interacted with in different industries and, and education come to us and say, hey, we're using your tech and check out the cool stuff we're doing. Um, it was, you know, it was amazing. I mean, it was breathtaking to see how many talented people had used the engine in ways that we never really planned. Um, and from that, we, we really got a foothold in all these different verticals, and we've, we've had the opportunity now to, to expand and uh, build a real business around providing technology to those companies so they can achieve what they do. And, and you know, it's interesting. Um, when I was there, uh, if you read the story, hopefully people will have read the story. <laughs> but if you read the story, you'll, you know, I mentioned that I obviously I came out there um, to to visit your uh, headquarters. And um, when I was speaking with Tim during the visit, he had mentioned that uh, one of the things you you all discovered was that there isn't a lot that you have to do to um, make the engine viable for all these different. Um, as, uh, d- different uses outside of gaming, like architecture or like um, McLaren. Is it McLaren? I forgot. Yeah, yeah. the the car company. Um, so was that was that a surprise to you all that it, it basically was just doing some fine tuning? Uh, you know, it it wasn't really a surprise, and I think the reason is is that the problems are actually fundamentally pretty similar. Um, they all have to do with being able to create high fidelity visual representations of, of environments and, and you know, characters and, and uh, items in the environments or things. Um, so the, the, the technology actually works equally well when applied to a non-entertainment purpose. Um, the, the other thing is that, you know, one of the great things about Epic is we use our technology every day. We have, we have a lot of different game teams. We have teams on, on, in the engine group that are constantly working with clients or making demos and solving problems alongside of all the people who use our tech. Um, the result of that is that, that a lot of the usability challenges are actually worked out because anything that is too onerous or too difficult that a normal user would encounter, we've already encountered it. And uh, believe me, our teams yell at us when we have something that doesn't work well. So we go in and we we actually, you know, really not only eat our own dog food, but we, we live on our own dog food. And 
uh, that gives us the opportunity to make sure that we have tech that actually is, you know, relatively usable and and um, and easy and and solves the problems that other people are going to have. So uh, that's that brings us uh, neatly into games. Uh, you know, and obviously all of your games use your tech. Uh, and as you mentioned, you you you've done a lot of. Uh, um, improvements on the engine based on that. I, I guess let's talk, talk first about the game that isn't a game that everybody wants to be a game, which is Bullet Storm, uh, Bullet Train. Sorry, not Bullet Storm. That was a game. <laughs> uh, but Bullet Train, um, it sounds like started out as basically you all wanting to just make something in VR, and uh, in doing that, uh, it sounds like you made a lot of improvements to your engine, and of course, it made something really neat. Where where did things stand on that? Still, are you all still uh, messing around with Bullet Storm, or um, I keep doing that Bullet Train? Bullet Train, yeah, Bullet Train, yeah. We are, we are, we continue to. Um, you know, it's a project that came from a small group of of people in the company who are really passionate about pushing the boundaries of what could be done in VR and experimenting and and understanding what paradigms of movement and interaction uh, are going to really work and be relevant. Um, and, you know, we, we care a lot about this medium uh, personally because we're, we're all gamers and we're people who, who are fascinated by the potential of where things like VR can go. So this team came and they developed something really cool, and I think we were all amazed by what came out of that effort. Um, so... That continues. I mean, th- th- it isn't something that we've put on the shelf. We continue to work on it, and among many other things that we're doing uh, to really understand how that technology is going to evolve. How, how hard do you think people are going to have to beg to get you to make that into a game that people can buy <laughs> or a demo? We'll see. We'll see. We're, we're you know, we we have yet to to figure out exactly what the future of all that is. So we're that's. But I, I can promise you this: it is not dead. It is something that is being worked on actively, and you know, in my opinion, it's getting cooler and cooler. It, it's funny. Like I, I've uh, I've only tried it, I think, three times. I'm sure there are people there at, at the studio who've probably played it way more than that. But every time I play it, it's fun. Like it's not like I am. Um, you know, I, there are plenty of games that I've played multiple times because of my job. And, you know, after the first or after the second or third time, you might get a little bored of it. But it, it's like a uh, uh, almost like a, a little sandbox where you can do all these neat things. I, I know at GDC, they talked about how it was inspired by movies like Old Boy, you know, where you can do all these crazy things like, you know, throw your gun at someone or teleport and grab a gun. Um, have you how, how much time have you spent playing the game and, and what do you think of uh, sort of replaying it? I've, you know, I've spent a good deal of time playing it because I have the benefit of being able to walk down the hall and, and bug the guys and put the VHMD on and try it out. Um, I think this is going to be one of the big questions about VR is how do you make replay meaningful? Um, you know, right now the technology is still fairly early. And uh, as I'm sure you've experienced, it's something that you don't want to wear for hours and hours and hours at a time. So the challenge that we're grappling with is how to create a game where it is replayable, but the session length is really tuned for the technology as it exists today. So you don't want to spend, uh, you know, potentially four hours or eight hours standing in the middle of a room with, with move controllers. Um, uh, you, you want to be able to um, have an experience that's fulfilling and rewarding, but, you know, maybe it's more like 10 or 15 or 30 minutes at a time. 
Um, the team is working on that right now. And again, I think just like the way you navigate an environment in VR, those are going to be important questions to answer, and, and they're only going to come from experimentation. Yeah, it's interesting. I uh, I, I just came back from a, a trip where I was doing a lot of flying. Um, right before that, the uh, the both uh, the HTC Vive and the Oculus Rift had launched, and I had been playing a game called Hover Junkers, which is this great. Uh, yes. Yeah. So you've played it. It's a shooter, uh, but it's got a, a neat a neat uh, concept built into it that deals with mobility, but also it's just kind of a fun game. I uh, it involves if you play it. I think if you play it right, that's the way I feel. Uh, that you have to do a lot of squatting and moving around because you're kind of ducking behind cover. So I played this for a few days, and right when I left on my trip, I realized I think I had like pulled something in my leg, which <laughs> I obviously not something I've ever experienced before. So it is interesting that like on top of the issue of uh, maybe spending too much time with you know with screens up close to your eyes and, and having this headset on, you have to worry about like physical injuries, which is something, you know, you don't think about. Um, do you, do you all, uh, you, I know you have teams that work in VR and, and you have obviously the engine where you can edit in VR. Um, do you, are there things that you've had to sort of best practices you've had to come up with? Like, Hey, you have to take a break every couple of hours. You know, it's for us, it's really been more about coaching people before they get into VR um, we've had some pretty hilarious experiences where people like karate chopped the Oculus cameras or, um, you know, smashed keyboards or, you know, inadvertently did a whole bunch of things that they didn't realize because they were so immersed. Um, so we thankfully have not had any injuries that I know about, but we definitely have had some some near misses and, and uh, some hardware damaged along the way. Um, so it's a uh, Again, it's you know it's an emerging medium where where there's going to be a whole lot of education that has to happen, and um, I expect there to be a lot of hilarious YouTube videos along the way. Oh, just so it's all on YouTube, then it matters. I mean, that's, exactly. that's all that matters, really. That's right. <laughs> um, have you are you aware of there's this uh, thing? I only know this uh, this story. Maybe by the time, <clears throat> excuse me, maybe by the time the epic story runs, which this is uh, obviously we're recording this earlier than the story's running. <clears throat> we will have run this other storm about to mention, uh, but I was editing a story yesterday about a, uh, some new VR tech, uh, surrounding something called, I think it's called the rift. It's essentially, uh, it's out in Utah and it's, it's a holodeck. Like there's no other way to put it. You, you still have to put on a headset, but, uh, it's all, uh, technology that the, the hardware is all technology that they've developed, but you put on this headset, you put on a vest that has actuators in it so it can actually make you feel things. Um, and they have things like fans that can blow hot and cold air on you. And they have misters that can blow water and, uh, and it's all in this big room. Uh, it, it's fascinating that like, we're already getting like VR just came out and we're already like, there are people out there working on the next step. Um, do you like as a company that that is currently in the in the uh, sort of virtual world in, in terms both of virtual reality but also graphics? Do you think you're going to be working more closely with companies uh, as as VR makes the inevitable leap into sort of the blend of real and uh, physical? I'm sorry, virtual and physical. Absolutely, yeah. In fact, we I, I think the the company you're talking about the experience is called the Void. I think ah, the Void. You're right. It wasn't the Rift. Damn it. So we've already been uh, talking with those guys, and they're doing some amazing things. I think, again, part of the nature of our company is that we don't have the opportunity to do everything we want to do. So we work with partners uh, across industries, and we help those companies and those partners 
do things that we wish we could do. We just don't have the time and the, and the capability. So I think, you know, we're, we're doing that already. Uh, of course, um, uh, at GDC, we talked about Disney and Imagineering uh, and how we're working together with them. Uh, and then there are a lot of companies that are doing innovative new things. And not only here in North America, but in China and other markets where there are radically different approaches and, and different tolerances. So, uh, you know, I think we're really in the, the sort of very, very early days of, of the development of this technology and the ways in which people will interact and consume it. It won't just be at home. It won't just be solitary. I think it'll be amazing once uh, a few more years pass by and we find out what works. So I think it'll, it'll really change um, our world forever. And not just entertainment. I, I think it'll have very wide-reaching um, and permanent effects on the way that people live their lives and, and how they interact. So uh, it's exciting days. Uh, you know, my, my sincere hope is that as VR um, sort of expands and blossoms out to uh, what I think right now this first wave is mostly hardcore users, but as it gets into more hands. What I really hope happens is that we start to see <laughs> Uh, arcades come back in some form because I, I could see like uh, like the void, you know. Uh, I know that's more like laser tag, but I could see there being more experiences that are VR related, and you know, perhaps coming, you know, sort of. It would be ironic, I think, if something that uh, a lot of people were concerned was going to be isolating became the thing that brought gaming back out into like malls and places that I used to play video games. Yeah, I think that's inevitable. You know, the not everybody has the the you know high end GPU at home or the space to be able to you know set up uh, you know a Vive um, or or whatever technologies are going to come next. Um, and even if you did, I think that there are a lot of experiences that will be better when you're able to play multiplayer in a in a shared social environment. So you know, think about it. Right now, latency is something that's really critical to deal with in VR because of the degree to which, uh, you know, the human brain is sensitive to any perception of latency. Um, so th- I think there are going to be a lot of opportunities that emerge for people to go and play games together or have other experiences that are completely unrelated to gaming, whether it's, you know, traditional linear entertainment or interactive TV or animation or, or travel or education. Um, it's really a massively broad spectrum of, of opportunity. Um, and right now, the cool thing is, again, nobody knows where it's going to go. And by the way, Brian, if my answers are too long, you can edit me down because I realize I'm, I'm no, being, no, I uh, very, very verbose answers. To I'm, I'm being questions. I'm being so quiet because they're so interesting. All right. No, they're not. They're not too verbose at all. Um, all right. the, so you mentioned Disney. Uh, one of the things that I was fascinated with was I. I, I have to admit, I really love uh, when technology, especially video game technology, merges with. Um, non-gamey stuff or, or traditional video gamey stuff and seeing technology get out there and do kind of interesting, cool things. So at GDC, you had this whole talk that was that basically where you had someone from NASA come up, um, you had McLaren and then you had Disney and they, they kind of did the, uh, drop the mic moment where they were like, you know, we're working on, we're using this technology specifically, uh, the unreal engine to create, some experience and they, the hint was that it's a millennium Falcon experience, but like, that's cool. Like, and I'm sure you guys must be over the moon that the idea that not only 
is your technology being used to, you know, work with something involving Star Wars, but also Disney, like seeing your technology in a theme park must be something you weren't expecting. You know, it's something actually we, Jay Wilbur, one of, one of the guys on our team, he's a huge Disney nerd and he has been talking to those guys for a long time. Uh, and, you know, Disney has been working for a while with uh, rides where they blend physical and virtual um, and I think actually to Jay's credit, he predicted a long time ago that there was going to be a really interesting market there. Uh, so he's been very actively having those conversations for many years now. Um, and we, you know, we see them as sort of the first really mainstream validation that you can blend these or merge these technologies to create something that is going to be amazing and is only going to grow from this point forward. The other really neat thing about it is that once companies like Disney create those experiences, how do those translate into um, experiences people can have at home, uh, either on video game systems or in VR? Um, uh, so there's a lot of potential there for, for their experiences to really extend beyond the theme park in the way that they, they've traditionally been limited. Yeah, they. I'm trying to remember the um, the game that Disney had. It still has it. It's the thing where you're you're on a ride, and you have they have guns. Little they wouldn't call them guns, but little nozzle things that you use. Yeah. What is that game called? I can't remember. It's, it's Toy Story something or another. I think isn't it? Um, isn't it it might be. It, it, I, but it, essentially, the idea is if for those of you who haven't played it, you you have this this thing that looks almost like uh, something that would be mounted on a fire truck, but you're in a, a car and you're wearing glasses. And essentially, you're you're playing a shooter where you're having to shoot objects. Uh, the objects that you're shooting, if I recall, I actually played it, and it's been a while, but I think yeah. that, that is all augmented reality. And the stuff coming out of the gun, I think, is – I can't remember if it actually shoots balls or if it's augmented reality as well. Yeah. Um, I think it's all I think it's all virtual. Yeah. Uh, and it, it's like – what's funny, though, is uh, that was created by Disney, obviously, but then they, they took that. And they turned it into a, a Wii game. I think it was uh, for the Wii, not the Wii U. Um, and so that's, to me, sort of fascinating, this sort of back and forth between – and I think you were sort of hinting at that, this idea that you know, maybe, maybe some of these things are going to start out. Like uh, the other, one of the other things we saw that was Star Wars related to GDC was this experience where you uh, essentially had a lightsaber um, and were you know, take, uh, trying to take out uh, attacking stormtroopers by uh, – by reflecting their shots back at them. Um, and, uh, you know, I don't think in the experience I saw there's any way that could come into my house. But who knows in a year or two if they couldn't figure out a way to make it run. Because I think it, that was running on, like, that was running on a few computers, I think, and it had a lot of tech that most people don't have. Yeah, I I, I mean, again, this is just the very, very beginning Um you know, if this was the internet, it's probably 1994 or something like that when, you know, the first people are starting to get their hands on it and it'll evolve a whole lot before uh, it really becomes um, more mature and, and better defined. So do you think, I'm curious, I, I sort of, I, I'm a big fan of, of emerging technology. I love VR. I think it's great. I, though, am in the band, uh, the band, the uh, bandwagon, I guess, <laughs> that thinks that uh, it's not going to be the mainstream massive hit that some people might think it will be this time around. Um, I don't think it's Virtual Boy, but I also don't think that this is going to be you know, the Game Boy. 
uh, to use Nintendo analogies for some reason. Um, wh- where do you stand on that? Do you think this is going to be the one that everybody is going to have in their house in a year or two, or do you think we have to wait for like another wave? I think it'll take another wave. Um, I think that right now there are enough challenges with getting hardware set up and the the quantity and quality of content um, uh, that it really will be, I think, appealing to early adopters and, and hardcore gamers and people who are sort of um, uh, more interested in what right now really is a niche market. I think that in two or three or four years, the technology will begin to mature enough that, you know, eventually somebody like Apple or Google or some some big hardware company is going to find a way to get it right and make it really, really easy to use. Or maybe a future version of, of uh, the Oculus Rift or, or you know, HTC's Vive can, can mature to the point that um, it becomes more mainstream. But for that to really happen, I think you, you have to get the form factor down. It has to be wireless. Uh, and of course, when we get to AR and mixed reality, I think then it'll become much, much more mainstream. Um, so I think these are all stepping stones along, along the way um, towards being something ubiquitous like smartphones are today. But that'll take time. I mean, I think it may take a full decade or even 15 years to get to that point. Yeah, that's. I think uh, I spoke with the HTC people, which um, uh, they're, they're, they do interviews, but I think more people tend to talk more to Valve when it, talks, when it, when it comes to the HTC Vive. But when I interviewed the HTC, they were essentially saying the same thing. Like, they're, they're very invested in this technology, uh, but they're going into it understanding that this is going to take a while. Like, this is not going to be an overnight uh, mainstream success. Um, so I, I want to, I, I know we, uh, I'm taking up a lot of your time. I want to go real quickly through your games um, before we run out of time. So sure. I, I, I may sound a little tired, and that's because I did what I have done multiple times since visiting your studio, and that is I said to myself, I think I'm going to I'm going to hop on my computer for like five minutes and play a, a single match of Paragon. And then like one in the morning happens <laughs> and, I'm, All right. and I'm still playing. <laughs> um, man, that game is a lot of fun. It's, it's interesting. Um, I, I, I enjoy it because it, it's a game that I can get into quickly. It, it has that sort of action MOBA feel um, where, you know, you're you're trying to take that take down towers. You've got uh, you've got the grunts coming out. You're trying to either protect them or attack them. You've got your heroes, but uh, on top of that, it has the layer of skills which you get through cards, um, and and also it seems to me the complexity of the characters themselves and their abilities. Uh, it takes for me at least. It's taken me a lot longer to really master them. So I'm enjoying the experience, but I'm still like I can tell I'm just scratching the surface. Um, do, do you spend, have you spent a lot of time playing Paragon? I have, I have, of course. Yeah, we play a lot of Paragon. Uh, we played, you know, many, many months of it before we started public testing. And then, uh, we had online tests that started in about December and ran through March. And then of course, uh, we began early access. Um, so I, I've played a lot of it and I'm, I'm very deeply, uh, invested in the game. Um, and it is a game where, you know, the more you play, the more you understand. Um, and it really is, you know, reaching a point where the ability level of other players in the community is is astonishing. I mean, it's far beyond what I think most of us expected to happen this quickly. Um, so that's really exciting to see. And, uh, you know, we, we look at this as the very, very beginning for the game. Uh, we're 
obviously, you know, these games grow over many years. So we're extremely committed to to getting this game right and making it something that uh, lives for a long time and where we have competitive play and a great community. Um, so it's it's super exciting. It's been a, it's been a great first month. What uh, do you have a particular character that you're fond of, or are you sort of playing the field? And people are going to make fun of me if I, <laughs> but I mean Gideon. Um, you know, he's considered sort of your typical uh, lane pusher and, and more of sort of a a uh, amateur hero. Um, but I I like him a lot. Um, I play a little bit of Murdoch. Um, uh, and, uh, you know, have rotated through Muriel and, and others. Truth be told, I go down and I ask the QA guys who's OP right now. And oh, nice. There you go. I'll make sure to try them out. So Yeah, I, I mean, I, I really like it, but it's like I'm still uh, – last night, I think I, I went through every single character and was like, okay, I'm going to – this is the one. And I'm like, no, maybe maybe this one because I see someone else like completely dominating and I'm like, oh, it's obviously not me. It's because I'm I'm choosing the wrong character. <laughs> and, no, it's totally. It's either that or your team. Yeah, right. or totally. Yeah, absolutely. Now I'm I'm excited. Uh, Iggy, Iggy and Scorch comes out tomorrow. Is that right? The twenty first. Right. So yeah. that's uh that's a neat. It's neat because you you have some really interesting character design. They're not uh, as traditional as you might find in other games like this. Um, I've forgotten. Um, I've forgotten the name of the one that's the rabbit in the mech suit. Um, Howitzer. Howitzer, thank you. Yeah, Howitzer. What a great, what a great design. Iggy and Scratch looks like another fantastic design. Is there? Um, how do you decide? Like, do you guys have competitions between? I'm sure you're getting way more ideas than you can put into the game right now, in terms of characters. So, how are you deciding which one gets in? Uh, you know, we we're trying to create a balanced field of heroes. So, a lot of it comes down to what roles they play. Um, and you know, when we started, we we actually made a deliberate decision to build a couple of hero archetypes that were familiar for people coming in from other MOBAs or coming in from, from shooters. Um, so, you know, we have a few heroes like Sparrow, for example. People um, identify her as a lot like Ash. Um, we did that very deliberately and intentionally. But once we got those first three or four or five really well-understood archetypes developed, the team um, was eager to move on and to... Uh, you know, develop new ideas that that were more creative and really took advantage of the visual fidelity of the game. Um, I think, you know, Severog came out three weeks ago, uh, so he was a little bit more of what you might consider a traditional epic character. Uh, Iggy and Scorch is more playful, um, and I think going forward they're going to get more and more interesting and, and, um, and ultimately, over time, uh, we'll create a pantheon of heroes that that allow players who have different interests in both playstyle and um, from a thematic standpoint to find something they like. Right, right. Um, and uh, okay, so moving over real quickly to um, uh, Unreal Tournament. Um, boy, is that game fast! It, it has been a long time since I've played an Unreal Tournament game, and so I went in uh, and I probably died like ten times in the first minute. <laughs> I was like, "Holy crap! I forgot how quick this game is." Yeah, I mean, it is the quintessential fast-paced competitive shooter. Um, I don't think there's anything faster out there. Uh, so you really have to have, um, you know, some serious skills to be able to play that game and, and do well in it. Um, and, you know, I we're both getting old, Brian. So yeah, well, yeah. It's not going to get any easier. I think, uh, I think that's why Paragon is more appealing. Not that Paragon is slow, but it's like... It, it, mind game. Yeah, exactly. There's more pacing. You can be support. Um, 
That's right. Even if you suck at it, as I was told multiple times last night. <laughs> <laughs> um, and uh, Fortnite, uh, I still I still need to harass you guys about getting uh, getting into that. It's it is it an alpha or is it beta? Where is it right now? So we are doing private, uh, basically closed alpha testing. Um, the game is going to be an amazing game when it comes out. We're really excited about it. We are taking the time to get it right because it's a huge, innovative game that has a lot of different elements um, that are working together. Um, but uh, fear not, it is coming, and we really have faith that that's going to be an awesome experience for everybody when it comes out. Now, you you're, you guys have interesting timing. Obviously, Fortnite has been in, in development for quite a while. It straddles yes. sort of... Epic 3 and Epic 4, which I think in and of itself is interesting. Uh, and the concept of Fortnite is interesting. But on top of that, you have, since since you've started developing it in the time between then and now, you have the release and tremendous success of both Destiny and now The Division, uh, which I think, uh, obviously not the same game, but on some level, uh, I think share some elements where it's sort of this blending of single-player, multiplayer... Um, so do you, are you looking at that uh, sort of yeah. emerging area now? You hit it on the head, actually. I mean, we, we think that it's really a nice combination of the shooter RPG mechanics you find in, in a Destiny or a Division um, with elements of the survival craft genre. Uh, if you think about, um, you know, uh, H1Z1 or uh, DayZ or Unturned, um, and then with building elements that you might find, um, you know, not quite Minecraft. It's not quite as open-ended as Minecraft. It's more uh, intended to be action building and combat oriented. But if you combine those three basic uh, gameplay frameworks, you have Fortnite. Um, and so we think that there, you know, there's so much surface area. There's so much opportunity to not only have the basic PVE and co-op modes, but also PvEVP and, and a lot of other variations that uh, will emerge over time. Um, and couple that with a replay system that we have in Paragon, uh, which has allowed you know, the community to get in and, and make really great content, uh, we think that'll play really well in Fortnite also. It's, it's, um, it's worth mentioning, and I should have maybe said this at the very top of our whole conversation, that everything we've talked about... Uh, to some degree, I mean, there are different ways of describing it, but on its most basic level, you could basically say they're free. I yeah. mean, you, or they will be. Yeah, like, I mean, the games, uh, obviously, you're monetizing them in different ways, but you can, like, Paragon, uh, I'm sure at some point when I finally figure out which hero I, I really like, I'm going to spend money to try to make that character look different or unique for me. Um, but, like, I don't have to spend any money to play that game, and I've, I've been playing the heck out of it, and I haven't spent a penny. Um, and uh, it sounds like Fortnite will be similar. Unreal Tournament isn't just free. It's also, it's in live development, which is, I think, really fascinating that, you know, people, I, my understanding is that people are basically, depending on the build you're, you're playing, you can be right behind the active development of that game that you're playing. That's, that's right. Yeah, I mean, this is this is a really deliberate choice by, by Epic. Um, we... We like the idea, and we think it's a very honest idea to say that for a game like Paragon, you know, no matter how much money you have, if you have any money or no money, um, you need to be able to come into that game and be competitive. Um, and so play, have a good time, never have to spend a dollar. If you like it or if you love it and you, you want to, we want to give you ways to buy skins or buy other things that aren't gameplay affecting. Um, but we made that choice, and of course... We're a business, so we we have to build 
games that are great so that people come in and they want to spend money. But we never want to make that a condition. So, you know, Paragon right now is an early access where you, it's paid early access, but it'll go into open beta in summer. And from that point forward, it'll be completely free for everybody um, to play and, and compete to the very top end. Uh, Fortnite, we're taking the same approach. And uh, as you mentioned, UT also. So we believe in it. Um, it is a departure for a lot of the Western industry. Uh, but I think perceptions about the model are changing. And we are just making conscious choices not to be pay to win and not to be exploitive in the way that we do it. And our sincere hope is that by doing it, We'll build a good community over time, and, and um, that community will grow, and they'll have ways to spend money if they want to, and, and that'll help Epic be successful, too. Well, and, and um, I mean, you have a perfect example of how this can work with the engine. You, over the last few years, I don't know the exact timing, you went from uh, paid to some stuff that was free for some people to essentially it's free now, except you know if you make a game that makes X amount of money, you're paying royalties. And uh, I, I can't remember, I think it was Tim that told me that last year was by far, and he really stressed that, the most financially successful year for Unreal. Yeah, it was, and, and this year we're going to do it again. So um, it has been working. Uh, it has been a great example of if we're generous and if we make things available to people, then people use them, and when they do, uh, everybody succeeds together. Um, and so we, we really embrace that model, and we are building Epic to be a company that we're proud of and have business models that we believe in. Um, so it's, it's, uh, it's been a great evolution and a great opportunity to, to innovate and take risk and uh, so far be rewarded by that. Do you, as a company, I, I sort of, in my story, I, uh, in sort of summarizing it at the top, I say that you, know, you started out as a very specific sort of company, a company that made games, and now you seem to be becoming a company that essentially makes everything. Um, and that's obviously a little hyperbolic, but in, in so broadening your horizons, are you ever worried that you're going to lose some focus? Yeah, it's a constant um, balance that, that we have to strike. And we talk a lot about when we say no and when we say yes. And uh, a big challenge for us is that there are so many cool things happening and so many great ideas that we come across either internally or people bring to us externally. Um, and the ability to to choose what we do and where we partner and where we might just support people and help them do something on their own uh, is really a challenge um, because we're curious and we we are passionate and we want to do everything that we can um, but we can't so uh, it's something that you know we have to constantly think about and be vigilant about so that we don't lose our focus and and are still able to do relatively few things really well. What do you, what, like when you look forward, um, I know obviously Tim does a lot of looking forward. I mean, cause he's been so good at predicting and sort of shifting the company, but you, you must be spending a lot of time in the here and now because you're evolving so much. But when you look forward, what, what do you see? Like, what do you think the, I hate to say this, but like Epic 5.0, what, what is the future for Epic? Do you think? Wow, that's a big question. We're we're still working on 4.0. I don't know. If, I don't know if we uh, <laughs> that'd be that. That's one of those cases where we'd be getting ahead of ourselves. I think so. Um, I you know look. I think for 
many years to come, um, what will remain constant is that we're going to be building Paragon, uh, building Fortnite. Uh, we're going to have Spy Jinx coming out um, in the not too distant future. Uh, of course, we have UT, which we're building. Um, we have the engine business, which, as you mentioned, is becoming broader and addressing more markets and, and uh, you know, supporting VR and, and more independent developers and, and moving more into mobile. Um, and then we have a, uh, a platform that we've built to bring all of these things directly to the people who use our tech or who play our games. Um, and we've done that really all to reduce the distance between us and our users. Um, so as far as what Epic 5.0 looks like, I really can't answer yet. Um, but I think that those themes will be consistent and we will continue to focus on being a company that does great work that we believe in and do it in a way that we're proud of um, and try to expand that and you know bring more things to more people and, and build great partnerships. So those will be the things that will be constant. And as soon as we know about Epic 5.0, we're going to call you up to do a public article about it. <laughs> that should be in like, what, four or five more years, we'll say. Something like that. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for listening to Polygon Newsworthy. You can subscribe to the show and get every episode delivered automatically as soon as it's released. Visit polygon.com slash newsworthy for links to subscribe in iTunes, your podcast player of choice, or to download each episode as an MP3. If you subscribe to the podcast in iTunes, we'd also appreciate it if you rated the show. Really, it would mean a lot.